The Pentagon's long-in-the-oven cybersecurity maturity model certification program has arrived, sort of. The CMMC program still needs to go through a lengthy rulemaking process before it's going to be required in federal contracts. But voluntary CMMC assessments are kicking off for the first time starting this month. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Tell us more about this particular milestone in the whole long saga here, Justin. Yeah, it's a big one in the sense that it's the first time third-party assessment organizations will be able to go in and review a defense contractor's cybersecurity practices under the auspices of this CMMC effort. It's really a trial run of the CMMC process that Pentagon officials hope to make mandatory in the future. So four companies have signed up to be assessed as part of this voluntary period. Those assessments are scheduled to begin August 22nd and continue for several weeks. And the incentive for these companies is that if they pass, they get a CMMC certification once the program actually becomes effective uh, at some point in the next year or so. So you've got several CMMC third-party assessment organizations called C3PAOs who are authorized to perform these assessments, and it'll all be overseen by the Pentagon's Defense Industrial-Based Cybersecurity Assessment Center. Matt Travis is chief executive of the cyber accreditation body that oversees those assessors. He talked more about the voluntary period during a town hall. I'm really excited that we are at the point now that voluntary assessments have actually been scheduled, and I think this is a real a real sign. There's been a lot of waiting, and I know this is not the mandatory program in effect yet. We've still got a ways to go for that. But this really is going to be reflecting of the investment, the work that's gone into CMMC to date. And really want to thank the C3POs for their patience as well as their flexibility in agreeing to partner with the DIBCAC in getting these initial assessments underway. And that's the Cyber Accreditation Board's Matt Travis. And Justin, you're also reporting that the Cyber Accreditation Body has a document out that's linkpin to this whole thing. It's called the CMMC Assessment Process. You'll hear it referred to as the CAP. And it really lays out every step that C3PAOs should take from when they first start talking to a contractor about doing an assessment through the actual assessment itself and then what happens afterward in terms of evaluating the results and sharing them with DOD. So the accreditation body released this CAP document following Tuesday's meeting. It's a pre-decisional draft document that's been in the works for about a year. And they're accepting comments on it for the next 30 days. And, of course, being pre-decisional and draft and out for comments, you know people started firing bullets at it. Is it already generating controversy? Yeah, it's already gotten a lot of criticism for being confusing and, and difficult to read, for having some typos and other quality control issues. And really for for referencing appendices that are are missing, even though they're pretty critical to the process. For instance, one appendix would lay out how a contractor disputes what an assessor finds in terms of a specific cybersecurity control. That's going to be pretty crucial as part of this process for a certification that's crucial to winning defense contracts. So a lot of this is playing out on LinkedIn and other online forums where there's always a lot of CMMC chatter and debate. But I spoke with Leslie Weinstein. Uh, She's a consultant at Deloitte and follows the CMMC process pretty closely. She says this document is heavy on business process details, but is missing a lot of important aspects of how an actual assessment should work. It was confusing and redundant, circular or repetitive. It was very difficult to follow. You have to have a whole lot of trust in that person or those people that you're bringing in to assess your cybersecurity. And then you want to know that they have a very strict 
protocol set of guidelines that guide their assessment process. Yeah, sounds like most government writing, especially rulemaking and guidance to industry. What has the accreditation body said about this document? Well, as you can imagine, it's been a little too early for them to respond directly to some of the criticism. It was only released in the past uh, week. But they've been anticipating a little bit of blowback from what is a pretty passionate CMMC observer industry, if you will. Matt Travis really emphasized that the body is asking for feedback and said that the document is not final. He admitted there might be some typos and that they really want to hear what people have to say about it. We don't think we've got a monopoly on good ideas. We put a lot of effort into trying to architect a sensible procedure for how assessments should be conducted. We've got enough there for it to be a good conversation starter. I think we've got an 80% solution, if not more, but looking forward to hearing from you. Again, that's cyber accreditation body chief executive, Matt Travis. People like Weinstein really hope to see more detail on how assessments should work in the future, especially as this voluntary period kicks off where officials are really trying to build confidence in the CMMC program ahead of the formal rulemaking. And industry is probably getting a little impatient, I would think, because the first CMMC came out early in the Trump administration, and that was sort of at the cliff before they could push it over into getting going and let it fly off. And then the Biden administration came in, did the review. That took almost a year. So then we're into CMMC2, and now it's the midterms. And so if a CMMC is going to have to stick, they need to get it launched. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, this voluntary period could be crucial because it's really putting this whole theory into practice that you can have third parties go out and assess contractors' cybersecurity, and it's not going to add too much cost to the pro- to the defense contracts. And it's going to give you confidence that these these companies will be able to protect sensitive defense information. So this could really go, you know, one of two ways. You could you could have this voluntary program kind of show folks, yes, this this really can work. Or there can be issues that lead to further questions about a CMMC program that, as you've noted, has really been tortured. So Weinstein really sees the need for this this cap document that really lays out this process to really reflect a a strong, rigorous process going forward. And to the backdrop of all of this, did people sense that they're acknowledging the fact that, meanwhile, the cybersecurity situation itself is getting that much more crucial and critical? Here you've got China threatening to shoot down the airplane, taking the Speaker of the House of the United States on a trip to a country called Taiwan. The situation is getting worse in the world, and that would seem to mitigate in favor of getting this thing over the line. As the CMMC program is kind of dragged along, obviously cyber threats have only been on the rise, I think, especially over the last couple of years with the, the rise of things like ransomware. And there's been efforts alongside and outside of CMMC to really raise the bar at companies across the board. I think you've seen, you know, the White House executive order and some other efforts aimed at that. But really, you don't have a lot of assessment and certification programs out there to really check on a defense contractor or any contractor's practices. And that's why this is so critical moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here with the voluntary period. And a final point is, if you are a small contractor or a sub, get good at cybersecurity anyway, and chances are you'll be in a much better position when the CMMC actually hits. Yeah, I think that's the hope here is that if you're getting good at cybersecurity now, you won't have any problems when it's a requirement. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. 
Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my 
my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.